We are in the uh, the book of Acts. This is a sermon series. I started about, I guess this is the fourth one, so about four weeks now. Um, and tonight, Lord willing, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. I know that's a lot of verses, and so don't get real scared. I'm not going to go into great depths in some of these. We're going to do several together. And so I'm not going to be up here for more than three hours, so uh, you just... <laughs> No, it won't be bad, but uh, we stopped off last time there in verse 13 of Acts chapter 2. Now, I've titled the message tonight, The Model Sermon, but we're going to look at some very important things, and I've tried to place emphasis during this entire study on the importance uh, of the early church and how the apostles were appointed by the Lord Jesus in the foundation of the church, and all these things that we, we read in the book of Acts is where we actually come from. And so this is a New Testament church, and so we should be looking back at the early church and seeing how they did things and what the Bible says about it and try to model ourselves after these folks. And uh, the, the great thing about God, he doesn't withhold anything from us. So even the bad is given, the good stuff and the bad stuff, so we know what to do and what not to do. But here tonight we're going to look, and we, we left off last week, verse 13, we saw the Holy Ghost had came down and, and dwelled in those faithful followers of Christ. They were up there in that upper room. And uh, we looked at all that and how um, uh, Christ departed or imparted and gave them the ability to speak in different languages that was not their native tongue. So they wasn't speaking in a jibber-jabber or something that was un, not understandable, but it was something that people in that language could understand. The person speaking it, didn't know the language, but God enabled them through the Holy Ghost to be able to speak in these other languages, these native tongues. The Bible said in Acts 2 and 12 through 13, And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. And that's where we left off last time, uh, with those that were unbelieving and didn't understand what was going on. And so they want to attribute to all these things going on to, to drunks. So they said, these, these people have been drinking. That's what's going on. They're out here drunk and they're carrying on with all this and, and, and speaking in all these crazy languages. And they want to know what it means. And so we looked at last time how the world is not much different than it was then. Uh, you have those that the Lord is going to, when they hear the things of the Lord, they're going to, you know, be curious and come and, and, and see there's something supernatural and uh, be interested in it. And the Holy Ghost will draw them to him. And then you'll see these others that want to mock. And, and uh, that's what it said, verse 13, others mocking. And so they were making fun of all this. And we have mockers today that mock this very church that you're in right now. They're mocking Northside Baptist Church because of Christians going in there and they say, what in the world are they doing in there? They don't have any sense. Well, that's where we pick up tonight with Peter. He's going to defend these Holy Ghost speaking people. Verse 14, he sa it says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Now, like I said, the model sermon. We see Peter getting up on the day of Pentecost and he's going to preach a sermon that is going to forever change history. And it's going to forever change how the church operates. In fact, this is the beginning of the church. The church started with Jesus Christ and his apostles and it was empowered on the day of Pentecost when Peter got up and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Ghost entered into Peter and Peter got up and started preaching. And I want you to notice how his sermon begins. It says the Bible said he lifted up his voice. 
Now, you can only imagine how loud things were at that point in time. These, it was during Pentecost. People from all over in different lands. In fact, all these languages that were spoken, it was given to us there in the previous verses, all the different languages, that's the different countries they came from. They all accumulated there in Jerusalem and were gathered together to celebrate and to observe Pentecost. And thousands upon thousands of people were there. Very loud atmosphere. And, uh, of course, all these that are speaking in these other languages going on and all these mockers and everything. So it's a hubbub of just imagine, if you will, thousands and thousands of people and all kinds of noise. So Peter stands up there and he says, with 11. So all the apostles are, are standing there. But Peter is the one that stands up. And the Bible says he lifted up his voice. And so he wanted people to hear what he had to say. And that's what a preacher ought to do. Ought to lift up his voice. You got to project yourself to be able to be heard. Uh, and I believe a preacher needs to be heard when he's preaching. In fact, the word preacher means one who heralds the gospel, not one who whispers the gospel. So he's one who heralds it. To herald is proclaim with enthusiasm the message that you've been given. The person that heralds has an important message. Peter had a very important message, and it needed to be heard by all these people. And so the person that heralds the message needs to be heard, and so they must project their voice. Now, I don't know if you know a lot about Charles Spurgeon. I had to study him for an entire uh, course in seminary when I was going through seminary. Uh, three months of Charles Spurgeon and his sermons and uh, how his life was and everything. That metropolitan tabernacle that he preached in that had thousands and thousands of people in it, they say that Charles Spurgeon could stand on that stage with all those people, no amplification, no microphones, nothing like that, and, and preach, and they, every person in that building could hear him. And so uh, he, let, he let it go. I've never trusted a soft-spoken preacher. Just never have. So the message is important. It needs to be heralded. It needs to be lifted up. So Peter is now using the authority that Jesus had already previously given him. Over in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew 16 and 19, when the Lord Jesus was asking all those people, whom do men say that I am? You know, who say ye that I am? And some were saying, you know, John the Baptist. Some were saying the lie. Some were saying that prophet and all this stuff. And he says, yeah, but who do you say I am? And Peter's the one that stood up and said, you're the Christ. <laughs> you are the Christ. And so Jesus told him in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you... I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou, uh, thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, a lot of people look at that and they say, what does that mean? I mean, is Peter, and a lot of people say, well, you know, St. Peter's up there at the pearly gates, and I hope he lets me in. You hear all kinds of crazy things growing up around here. But uh, a lot of people think Peter and Paul is standing at the pearly gates of heaven and deciding who's going to get to come in and come out. And because the Lord Jesus said he's giving me the keys of the kingdom, every time you see a picture of Peter that's been uh, drawn or um, painted, He's holding a set of keys. I think the, the Roman Catholics, their symbol is two keys. Uh, I believe the Pope, he's got the two keys. And so that is modeled after this where they say that Peter has a key to the door of heaven. That's not what this is talking about. All right. When he's given Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he means he's making him the instrument that is opening up the kingdom of heaven for the Jews and later the Gentiles. So Peter is the one that the Lord Jesus bestowed upon that that wonderful blessing to be able to do that. You, Peter, the one I'm going to use, I'm going to give you the keys to usher in the New Testament church. 
It's basically what it, what it means right there. So he's opening the door of faith to the world. First to the Jew, as we're reading tonight, and then later on, Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius comes along, he preaches to the Gentiles. So Peter gets to use those two keys. <laughs> and so uh, that's, that's what's happening right here. Now verse 15 says, this is Peter again. He said, for these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. So first he's going to convince the people that these guys are not drunk. All right, all these people you hear speaking in other languages, they're not drunk. He said it's the third hour of the day. What that means is it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Their time is different than our time. It's 9 o'clock in the morning there, and it was forbidden for them to, to, uh, to drink, eat or drink, before the fourth hour. And so especially during the holy time of Pentecost, and so certainly these men have not been drinking, only the worst of the worst would have been drinking that early in the morning, uh, you know, to be drunk. Clearly, there were not 120 drunk men out here, you know, uh, in, on the day of Pentecost running around at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so verse 16, it says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So now here he's making the case for these men not being drunks, but now he's turning it back to Scripture. He said, this is the, what Joel was talking about, the prophet. And so he says in verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter is, uh, as he said there, it's the prophecies. And the Jews were very familiar with these prophecies. They knew these things. Uh, They've been taught this all their life. And so it was spoken by the prophet Joel. And uh, although Peter didn't give the exact words that, that you see in the book of Joel, and by the way, it's in Joel 28 through 32, where he's, he's speaking of. Uh, I'm not going to read all that tonight, but you can look at that in your, in your spare time. But Joel 2, 28 through 32 is where he's given the prophecy from. And so the prophecies of the prophet Joel were coming to light. Uh, when Peter says, in these last days, he said that there, he said, in these last days, He's referring to the time period beginning right there on that day when the Holy Spirit was pouring out upon people and then dwelling within men all the way into the end of the world as we know it. So that's the last days. I've heard all my life, we're in the last days. We're, we are. We are in the last days. We are closer right now to the Lord's return than we were yesterday. And tomorrow, if the Lord doesn't come by then, we'll be closer tomorrow than we are today. And so I know all my life I've heard that. You know, the Lord can come back any moment. And uh, we sing that song, What a Beautiful Day for the Lord to Come Again. And I imagine walking outside, looking out in a beautiful day, and the clouds coming out, and all of a sudden the Lord comes. <laughs> I've thought of that all my life. But Peter says, in these last days. And so it covers from the church age all the way in the messianic age. And Peter's preaching at Pentecost was just the beginning of it. That's when all this starts, the, the last days. And that's when the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh. And remember last time I told you, before all this, the Spirit would come on people and then the Spirit would leave. We had men like Samson, 
who the Spirit, the Bible tells us the Spirit came upon Samson. He was able to do some things, and then after that, the Spirit departed from him. But after this, after the Lord ascended up into heaven, and he said, I'm going to send you another, another comforter. He's talking about the Holy Ghost. Well, when the Holy Ghost came and starts indwelling in people, that's what, that's what this is. And so all the other things, the prophet Joel, the, like the sun turning to darkness and the moon and the blood, these are events that are still yet to come. These have not occurred yet. All right, look at verse 22. Acts 2 and 22. He says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. All right, now, this model sermon is, uh, he's fixing to get on them. And so, first of all, he demanded attention. He lifted up his voice. And he had an urgent message. He went back in the Old Testament and grabbed Joel and said, this is what Joel's talking about. So he's backed it up by Scripture, proof. And now he's even going further. And now he gets to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he mentions Jesus. And what he's saying to him is, Jesus proved himself to you. Jesus came here. You know the one that you crucified. He came here and proved himself to be your Messiah. He fulfilled all the Scripture, all the prophets, everything that the Bible said that he would do, he did. And he did that in front of you. He said there out there, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. And so they witnessed all those things Jesus did. There was no denying the fact that he fulfilled all the prophecy. He'd healed the sick. He'd opened blinded eyes. He enabled the lame to walk and he raised the dead. All right there in front of these people. He gave them all the signs required of the Jews to prove that he is the Messiah. And so Peter, that's the first thing he does. He's He's putting them now under conviction. He's putting them under conviction. Verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whew, boy, I tell you what now. He's, he's laying it on them. He's not going to back off. And that's another thing. The model sermon and, and a preacher that's going to preach the gospel, he's got to lay it on there. He can't hold back. He can't apologize for what God's word says. He's just got to let it fall where it may. You know, if it steps on toes, it steps on toes. You walk out with your toes bruised. And so that's what he's doing right here. He said, you did it. Him being delivered by determinate counsel, foreknowledge of God, ye have taken. And by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This was scandalous. Here he is in front of all these people telling them that they killed Jesus by their own wicked hands. Verse 24, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. So now he even mentions the resurrection of Christ. See, Peter is pointing out the gospel. Jesus came here, sent by God. He fulfilled all the prophecy, and you killed him, but he was resurrected. And so Jesus was res resurrected by the power of God the Father. And he loosened the pains of death. Never again will Christ die again. Never. He's not beholden of death any longer because he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He died unto sin once. Never to do it again. Never. Ever. Like verse 25. Now he pulls up the patriarch David. And by the way, David is, is the end all be all. Abraham and David. To the Jew, Abraham and David. That's the end all be all. 
of, the, of their patriarchs. You can go back to them. They want to claim themselves to be Abraham's seed. And David was the greatest king ever lived. Verse 25, for David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. So again, Peter reaches back into the Old Testament and quotes the Psalms to prove to them that Jesus that they crucified was the promised Messiah. He said even David knew it. David knew who it was. And he's quoting from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And uh, I'll read that. It says there in Psalm 16, 8 through 11, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoice. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so the application here is showing that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He did not only do the will of the Father, he also did it with joy. And now Jesus is at the right hand of the Father working on our behalf. And I believe that for all my heart. That's what the Bible tells us. That he went to sit on the right hand of the Father. The right hand is, represents power. That's where the power is. And so Jesus is the power. He's sitting there on the right hand of the power of God. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. I imagine that, you know, thinking about the Lord there at the right hand of God, oh, what that must have been like uh, for Stephen as he saw the Lord standing. The Lord got up from that uh, seated position and stood as that, uh, that great man was martyred. So Peter is expressing exactly what the, Messiah, uh, what the Messiah that they had crucified is doing for those who believe on him. All right, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. And so now what Peter's doing, he's pointing out the fact that David was not the Messiah. You see, there were some that believed that. Some believe that David would be the Messiah that would come. And uh, he's pointing out, no, he is not the Messiah. And, you know, they put more stock in their patriarchs than they did anything else in their history and their past. Uh, but David, of course, being the most beloved king of all the Jews, all of Israel, um, he wrote those passages of Psalms we just read. But these Jews probably may have been thinking that David was referring to himself in those Psalms. And so what Peter's doing is pointing out that, no, he wasn't. Why? He says, because David is both dead and buried. David is dead and buried, but not Jesus. Jesus is not dead and buried. Jesus is alive. You can go over to where they place Jesus in a tomb. You're not going to find anything. But you go where David is buried. You, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find dust. You're going to find bones. That's what you're going to find in David's grave because that's where he's at, but not Jesus. And so David remains dead and buried. So there's no way the psalm was referring to David himself, but to someone else. Verse 30, 
Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And notice that Peter uses that word Christ right here. Christ. Contrary to some people's belief, Christ is not Jesus' last name. All right? Lord is his title, Jesus is his name, and Christ is his office. That's what that is. The actual Greek word for Christ is Christos. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so all these Jews were well aware of who Christ was. was. He was the, the one they'd been waiting on all their lives to be delivered. And uh, even the Samaritan woman at the well knew who the Messiah was. Uh, there in John 4 and 25, the Bible said, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Of all the, all the people in the Bible that the Lord just flat out told her who he was. I mean, the Samaritan woman, he said, that's me. <laughs> I am the Messiah. <laughs> And so Peter's making the case here that since it, was, it wasn't David because he's dead and buried, then it had to be someone else, and this someone else is the man you crucified, Jesus. Verse 32, this Jesus has God raised up, wherefore, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith, himself the lord said unto my lord sit thou on my right hand until i make thy foes thy footstool footstool and so peter just driving it home he wants to make sure they got this they're they're kind of knuckleheads it was hard for them to to get things just at the very beginning so you had to keep on and on and on that's why jesus repeated himself so many times because people didn't get it the first time so we kept on and on they still didn't get it most of them and so Peter is really driving it in. No, it wasn't your beloved King David that's, uh, that is resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father, but in fact it's Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified. God has raised him up from the dead, and, and we all witnessed the fact. We've seen him after that. He appeared unto many there. Uh, what was it, 400? You won't find dust and bones because Jesus is risen. And so it's this Jesus who is exalted at the right hand of God, or as... Paul put it in Philippians 2 and 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. It is this Jesus who's responsible for these men that are speaking in these languages. They're not drunk. Boy, Peter went a long way around to prove these men wasn't drunk, didn't he? <laughs> and so, look at the next verse, verse 39. Uh, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, this is where Peter just, he might as well took a knife out and stabbed him right in the heart. I mean, this, this got him right here. He says, it was you that crucified Christ. You're responsible for his death. You killed the promised Messiah. And what an awful thing for them to hear. I mean, this cut them to the quick. Uh, despite all the signs, the wonders, the proof that was given to you, you denied it and you had him killed. Verse 37, look at what happened. Now when they heard this, 
They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Boy, you talk about some preaching that made a difference. This bold preaching that Peter didn't hold anything back where he stomped on everybody's toes and then stabbed them right in the heart. Said they were pricked in their hearts. And they want to know what, what can we do? What is this? A, what can we do about this? What shall we do? That word prick means to pierce through and to agitate violently. That's what that means. That's what they were feeling. It was as if Peter had taken that knife, plunged it in their heart, and then just done it around. They were overcome with grief. They were horrified by the actions they knew they'd committed. And so they're desperate for the question. They're like all lost sinners when they come to the realization that they're dying. They're a sinner and they're bound for hell and they're desperate for an answer. What, what can I do? Everybody that come to Jesus, that's what they want to do. What can I do? What must I do? And that's what they're asking right here. What shall we do? Peter gives them the answer. Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. So that's the universal answer for salvation right there. The universal answer. Repent. He does say, and be baptized. He doesn't mean you've got to be baptized to be saved. All right, Some people read that into that. That's not what it means. Uh, I want to make it perfectly clear. Peter is not teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation. And we see this as it unfolds. We'll keep looking at it. And, you know, there, there's two different baptisms really mentioned in the Bible. There's water baptism and there's spirit baptism. Um, two different things. And some people want to debate whether Peter's speaking about spiritual baptism or water baptism. Uh, you could build a case for either one of them if you wanted to, if you want to go around and pick out Scripture and build a case. Uh, I believe he's speaking of water baptism. After they've repented and they believed in the Lord Jesus, then they get baptized, just like we do. Uh, so, referring to water baptism, then he's speaking of what they would do after they repented. And I'm not going to go into a great deal about repentance. I preach on it quite often. You'll, you'll hear more messages on it. In fact, in seminary, I wrote an eight-page thesis on the subject of uh, repentance. And I did make an A on that, by the way. <laughs> but uh, listen, um, Peter's answer to them is you must repent. You believe in the Lord Jesus to repent. Repentance, as I always teach, is a change of mind. It's a turning from your sin and toward the, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing. That's an act of repentance. And I believe it's a gift that God gives us is to repent. To realize that we're a lost sinner. We can't save ourselves. Lord, I'm turning from me. I'm turning from myself. I'm turning from my sin. And I'm turning you to you to save me. And so it's a change of mind from your self-reliance to placing your full faith in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. It's not a work. Some people say, no, if you teach repentance is necessary for salvation, then you're teaching works. No, you're not. It's not a work. It is a gift that God has given us. As we make that realization, we're turning from us and we're turning to him. So repentance is part of salvation. Anybody that teaches otherwise is not teaching the truth of the Bible. So after being saved, we are to be baptized as an outward sign that we're identifying with Christ. 
Because that's one of the ordinances that he gave us to, to practice in the New Testament. In fact, New Testament church, such as this church right here, that's the ordinances. The Lord's Supper is one, and baptism by immersion is the second. That's the Baptist ordinances from the Bible. And so um, our baptism is simply symbolizing the death of the old sinner man and the newness of life in Jesus Christ. That's what that represents. These Jews knew all about John's baptism. Uh, his baptism, the Bible says, is the baptism of repentance. In Mark 1 and 4, the Bible said, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Luke 3 and 3, and he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Acts 13, 24, when John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And lastly, in Acts 19, 4, then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So the Jews understood the baptism. They weren't up there thinking, oh, you mean we're not going to be saved until we get baptized? They, they weren't thinking that. They knew it was a follow-up to the repentance. Now, if it was spirit baptism, you know, you could try to build a case for that. You know, John the Baptist said, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. They are going to get that baptism as well. In fact, Peter told them, you know, they, uh, they repent and uh, be baptized and everything. And he said that the Holy Ghost will come on, upon you. And so that is a type of baptism, spiritual baptism. Uh, John 1 and 33, And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. So actually the indwelling of the Holy Ghost is a type of spiritual baptism. It's what you go through when you get saved. So, uh, I, like I said, I personally believe Peter's referring to water baptism when he talks about baptism and what they would naturally do after repenting and trusting Jesus as Savior. Uh, that's the same example we see with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Philip, uh, when he was preaching to him in Acts 8 and 36, it says, and As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So there's, there's your answer right there. You know, the eunuch says, What's preventing me from being, being baptized? He says, Well, <laughs> you know, you've got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. Because baptizing you would do nothing for you. <laughs> you got to believe in Jesus. And so he baptized him. Full immersion, by the way. He didn't sprinkle him. Regardless of if he's speaking of water baptism or spirit, you know, either way, they're not necessary for salvation here. Uh, if it was, the thief on the cross is burning in hell right now. But Jesus said what? He told me to be with him in paradise. He didn't take him down and baptize him first. All right, verse 41 will be, will be finished. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. Wow. You see the results of this powerful preaching that Peter did? And the Lord, he did this through the power of the Holy Ghost, by the way. Peter didn't come up with this on his own. It wasn't something he had prepared and 
You know, he thought, boy, I bet this would sound good. This would really get those guys. No, he just stood up and the Lord gave those words to Peter and he preached with power and boldness and didn't hold back. And we see the results. The word of God pricked their hearts. They realized they were lost. They called upon the name of Jesus, repented, and then baptized. So he preached boldly, lifted up his voice so all could hear, preached with authority of God's word as proof. He preached prophetically using prophetic passages from the Old Testament. He preached to glorify God and not himself. That's an important thing to remember. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached with urgency, letting the audience know how important it was. He preached with Holy Ghost conviction. He preached repentance just as Jesus commanded us to do. And he preached expectantly. He expected the hearer to respond to the word. It wasn't, well, I hope they, I hope they respond. No, he, he was expecting it. So, uh, but I do want to give you five things that Peter did not preach and we're done. I promise you. First of all, he did not preach about himself. You don't see him referring to himself, talking about all the things he did or nothing. He, he didn't, you know, tell them all about that. He didn't tell jokes or homespun stories. You know, I'm all, I'm, I'm all about a, a homespun story every now and then, joke every now and then. But I've been, I've been around some preaching and the entire 30, 45 minutes is nothing but jokes and stories. I got to have Bible with my preaching. He didn't use other resources outside the word of God. He didn't say, well, you know, Dr. Seuss said this and hop on pop. I heard a message preached from a Dr. Seuss book one time. I promise you. He didn't use flashing lights, drum beats, or external stimuli. A lot of places are relying upon that to get the, the spirit moving, the spirit moving. I think it's the dark spirit. He didn't hold back from preaching the truth to please men. He didn't say, mm, you know what, I better not say this part right here because they're all going to get mad and boy, there's a bunch of them and they're liable to come up here and, and drag me off here and kill me. He didn't care. He just said, you killed, you killed your Messiah. You did it. You're guilty, and the only way you can get out of this is repent, believe in Jesus. So look, we need to follow the examples given to us in the Bible. If we're going to reach lost people today, we've got to be bold like Peter. We've got to give the word of God just like he did, and we can't hold back. We've got to tell them the truth. The Bible says that the Lord doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so much for the message tonight. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you always find us in your word and in your will. God, thank you for these that are here listening and so faithful, God. Lord, I pray you bless them this week, God, and help them. Lord, I'm praying that you be with us coming up here in the business meeting. God, that everything will be done according to your will and in reverence to you and the right thing for your church. God, help us tonight, Lord. We'll give you the glory, honor, and praise for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.